roll here because we don't, I don't want to. I don't want to lose it. No, no worries. Five, four, three, two, one. Oh, this is like part two of a podcast. Welcome, Carl Lang and Evans. Did I pronounce that right? You did, mate. Spot on. Right now, I'm going to ask you something, Carl, because this always intrigues me. Right, so you've you're obviously a man from around the Liverpool region or or, or Dublin, part two, as I call it. Um, Carl Langan Evans. That's a Welsh name, Evans. But you have yes. this uh, double barrel name, Langan Evans. How do people get these two part names? How how do you just make it up, or how's it come about? No, mates. This is um, this is from a time in my life when my mum thought she was a bit posh. Um, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, the um, the last name, as you as you correctly said, Evans is Welsh, and that's that's my father's name. Um, the Langan is actually my mum's maiden name. So um, my mum's family are all from County Mayo, Castlebar. Oh, yeah, um, Castlebar. And, and yeah, so uh, no, no, it was basically, um, you know, at a, at a time, I think when it was probably sexy in the, in the mid 80s to, uh, <laughs> to think that you were something probably that you, you weren't. And yeah, she, she cursed me with this double battle name. Generally, I go around uh, and just call myself Carl Evans, if I'm being completely honest with you, mate. But <laughs> then, then people get confused. They're looking at your documents, your driver's license, and they're going, well, who are you? Are you Carl Evans? Are you, or are you this guy? So, yeah, no. So, I might, in fact, I was even thinking about adding an, uh, an extra maiden name to me, uh, to me two kids <laughs> when they get married. So, we'll have a three battle and see how that goes. <laughs> can, I, can I make a recommendation? You should like have something like Carl Langan Stark Evans, like for our Game of Thrones. That'd be a oh, cool Oh, yeah, 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 it would. It that would be, yeah. that'd be nice. Like, um, it'd be that kind of regal tone to it. Yeah, but I do like it. You're right. It is a bit posh. But, um, must, it must have been hard, like, when you were hanging around the flats in Liverpool uh, with that name. It wouldn't be like, wouldn't be that posh then around the flats would it? yeah no no it was um yeah it, it wasn't easy and then the, the crazy thing is is as you know a lot of people give you nicknames or a lot of the time they talk you know they, they refer to you in your surname so it took me a good long while to be referred to by two nicknames via the surname one you know some people would go with Langan other people would go with Evans and yeah it was um, yeah, it was tough times mate but now I'm a doctor and I even I think I'm posh it suits me quite well actually <laughs> well, you know, it's funny enough because before I got my PhD, I ran an experiment um, on LinkedIn. I was working for a mining company as a manager and um, um, a guy who I knew from from Harvard said, he says, if you want to sound, he was English as well. He goes, if you want to sound really posh and be like a right wanker, he says, put your middle initial, like your middle name, the initial of that in between your name. He says, it's a big thing in the States. And when you have that, he says, let's see what happens. So I put on my LinkedIn profile, Ian C. Dunigan. And man, my hits on my LinkedIn profile went through the roof within a week. <laughs> and then, and then I thought actually there was another Ian Dunican anyway, so I needed to see anywhere to differentiate myself, as you know. And now, now that I am posh as well, Karen, I'm a doctor also. Us doctors need go. to do something to uh, differentiate ourselves. But um, I suppose uh, one good thing I like about when I tell people I'm a doctor now, especially guys I haven't seen in 20 years, who so I was in the army where I used to knock around with drinking and. Um, you know, acted out on a Friday night to laugh and think it's some sort of joke. They still don't believe it. So, um, <laughs> yeah, same. I mean, it's taken me, I think even to this day, it's taken me a good few years to convince the old man as well that I'm not a medical doctor. Um, literally, I'll get a phone call about every medical issue that that man's got. <laughs> like, just, just reminding you, dad's not that type of doctor. Um, <laughs> You know, you need to make weights. I, I can, I can sort you right out. But, you know that issue you've got with your, uh, you know, your your big left toe. Probably better off going and seeing one of the other doctors for that. <laughs> 
Yeah, quite interesting. We could we could get into the history of PhDs and MDs and all that, but we won't get into that today. I saw a little Twitter war the other day about PhDs are the only people who actually are doctors and the rest are, you know, honorary titles. And I, I just thought to myself, we should be more concerned with the people who have no qualifications and are calling themselves exactly. a doctor because there's a few of those around. So Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Carol, um, you uh you're currently at um Liverpool John Moores University in the UK, Liverpool being obviously Liverpool City. Um, but you yep. started off as an athlete yourself. Uh, what sort of sport and, and um, competition were you into when you were younger? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I like I say, I come from Liverpool. Um, and obviously Liverpool is quite a, a, a big sport and city. The, the predominant sport over here, um, particularly seeing as we've got the greatest football team in the world. Just getting that one in there. Uh, yeah, listen, I don't, I don't follow soccer, so like you're, you're not going to pull any strings with me. I couldn't care. I, like, <laughs> I, was say, I always like to see people's reactions on that one, but no. My, um, yeah, my, no, my, my dad's a Liverpool fan. He, he'd probably be frothing at the mouth if he was listening, but he doesn't even <laughs> believe I have a podcast. So there you go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, no. So um, football was the predominant sport, and I, I started playing that. Um, me, me dad is absolutely football obsessed. Um, and I think basically what happened was it was going to go one of two ways. Because we were, me and my brother were literally getting it crammed down our throat. We were either going to get into it 110%, which, you know, at the beginning we did, or it was just going to put us off. And I think the, the latter occurred where I was just like, surely there's got to be more to this than, you know, more, more to sport than just playing football all the time. Um, so, yeah, I started kind of like diversifying and, and, and trying to get into other things, uh, trying my hand at different sports. And, as, as I found out, I was pretty terrible at pretty much, at predominantly most of them. Um, so give up on sport for a little while um, and started, as as we did in the in the early to late 90s, started getting into the computer game culture. Um, so got myself a PlayStation and lo and behold, one of the one of the favourite games that I had on there was, uh, was a game called Tekken. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so... And the, the the guy who I really liked on there was was a guy called Bayek Dusan, um, who was a you know real flashy kicker, and he did taekwondo. And I was like, yeah, I really like this. This this guy looks good. He's using his legs instead of using his arms. Um, and then I I just decided to start going and looking for um, a taekwondo club. And lo and behold, it was actually a computer game that got me into taekwondo. And then I, I went down, and got involved with it. Fortunately for me, there was quite a few clubs around because, again, Liverpool is quite a big combat sports city. We've got nice MMA scene, um, uh, BJJ scene. We're also quite good at boxing and taekwondo. So I managed to find a decent club. And then, yeah, that's, that's how I got into it and, and started, uh, started on the pathway to becoming an athlete in the sport. Mm. Some people uh, I've often heard before that some people think that Liverpool's uh, fighting culture may come from Ireland, given the proximity, only 35 minutes on a plane. And uh, quite, uh, as you said earlier on about your mother being from Castlebar, a big Irish contingent in Liverpool. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's. Um, I think Liverpool, obviously, you know, it, it was formerly one of the biggest ports in the world. It's a bit of a melting pot of a lot of different cultures. Um, there's a lot of fighting cultures in there. I mean, I, you know, the, the Irish... Um, we obviously had a, a, a mass uh, migration of the Irish, you know, due to former historical events, and there's, there's a big Irish presence in the city. But yeah, no, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be wrong there at all. But we have a we have a lot of good guys in the city across combat sports, you know. So there's quite a few of them who are on, you know, GB teams for like judo and boxing and wrestling and things like that. 
you've obviously got a couple of good fighters when it comes to MMA and and professional boxing. So yeah, big 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 fight scene. Yeah, so the the most probably famous ones you have at the moment there in UFC would be probably Darren Till and Molly McCann. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. So yeah. um yeah, both both are our premier fighters. Um Molly is is actually one fighter who I'm working with at the minute through through what we do in the university. Uh but yeah, two two really good fighters who are making waves in the UFC. And she fights at one twenty five flyweight? Yeah, so she's a yeah. flyweight Molly. Yeah, she fights at one twenty five. Yeah. And so what kind of work do you do with Molly then, Carl, in terms of uh, MMA? Yeah, so I suppose if it, I mean, if, if I can regress a little bit and give you a bit of a backstory, if that's okay, as to no, suppose yeah, to yeah. have it yeah, yeah. I probably so, should have um, asked you how you ended up working with some fighters. Yeah, yeah. So let's, let's back it up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine, it's fine. So yeah, I, I like I say, got into Taekwondo, um, did, did relatively well as an athlete, more, more so at the junior level. So represented uh, Great Britain. I went to the Junior Olympic Games. I was fortunate enough to win gold there. Uh, and then decided that I really wanted to push towards the, the Senior Olympics, uh, which for me would have been 2008. Um, so trained and trained and trained, pushed for that. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, that it, it wasn't going to be an opportunity for me to go. Um, the weight division because there's only a certain amount of weight divisions selected in Taekwondo, and the division that I was in wasn't selected. Not only that, if I was being completely upfront and honest, probably wasn't good enough to go anyway. Um, but that, that was kind of a big dream and a big passion. So I ended up retiring quite early uh, and got into coaching. And I spent a year coaching. And obviously, uh, when I'd competed, uh, I'd come to university and I was given a scholarship at Liverpool, John Moores. That's how I, I kind of ended up at, Liv- at LJMU. Uh, and I was given access to strength and conditioning and um, sports science support, nutrition, physiotherapy, and it just absolutely changed my career. It was really fundamental. So when I started coaching, I was like, you know, this this is the sort of thing that my athletes need to be to be engaging in and getting involved in. And at the time when I was coaching the club I was working with, did, weren't particularly affluent. He didn't have a lot of money, so it was like, well, I'll I'll just go back to university myself and and try and learn this stuff. So. I went back and, and did a master's degree in um, in sport and exercise physiology, picked up accreditations in strength and conditioning and things like that. I uh, got exposed to Professor James Morton and Graham Close in terms of nutrition and, and just started getting into that background. And then, yeah, following on from that, I uh, I got into doing a PhD. So I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit later on. But PhD was around weight making in combat sports. And just as a byproduct of that, really, and a lot of the local fighters, you know, they, they heard about the, the work that I was doing. Um, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I think I, I get a bit of double respect, one, for being an academic, but, but two, probably because I, I know a lot of these guys would be in, involved in the combat sports scene. Um, and then, yeah, one, one of the fighters was, uh, was Molly. So I've been working with Molly now for about 18 months. Um, her first... A dip into the UFC was a little bit disastrous. Um, so her first competition that she, she had, which was actually held in Liverpool, so UFC Liverpool, um, she had a, a really bad weight cut. So I think she had to, to lose 11 pounds the night before. Um, you know, it was quite widely publicised that she failed that weight. She had to forfeit, I think it was 30% of her purse. Uh, and then in the, in the bout herself, she ended up losing by submission. She got choked out by Gillian Robertson. So after that, she went on a little bit of a hiatus, um, and then she had a, a change in a in, in a nutritionist, and a nutritionist, the guy who I work with very closely now, uh, Paul Reed, 
came and sought me out and, and brought me on board. Um, and then, yeah, we've just been working with her ever since. And since that time, she seems to be doing really well. She's on a, a three-fight win streak now um, and is, is, is pushing towards that top 10, which is great. And um, has she got a fight coming up? I know there's been some talk about her. I hear I hear the guys on the Fight Disciples. I don't know if you listen to the Fight Disciples podcast. I hear those guys talking about her a bit. Yeah, I do. I do. I'm good, good mates with Nick Pete off Fight Disciples. Oh, yeah. um, so yeah, let, let, let's just pause there now, right? Let's just pause there now because I, I actually got onto uh, the Fight Disciples podcast by accident. I'm going to take a little detour here. Now, I, I love listening to the Fight Disciples every week, mainly because Nick Pete is a fucking idiot. And I mean that with all due respect. He is one of the fucking funniest idiots I've ever come across, right? He's brilliant. And I listen every week to see what he's going to pronounce wrong. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, I was playing it to my wife. I was going, do you know what this is? I think it was a spatchcock chicken or something. I don't know what he was calling it. I don't know what he was doing it. But last night as well, I ended up, I was listening to their podcast last night. And it's brilliant. I ended up tweeting at him because I, <laughs> I said, he said that Trevor Whitman was Mighty Mouse's coach, and Trevor Whitman used to say it was like playing a computer game. I wrote on Twitter, love your work. In today's podcast of PD underscore editor, it was Matt Hume not that coached Mighty Mouse, not Trevor Whitman. I said, you do crack me up. But that man, for an editor, it's quite ironic that his name is PD Editor, and he mispronounces every second word. But you know what? <laughs> that man makes me laugh so hard every week. I listen. I don't know if he's doing it on purpose, or what it's like, but I tell you, man, he makes me laugh so yeah, hard. If you haven't cool. listened to Fight Disciples and you're an MMA fan, and if you can handle, um, you know, Northern English lads going off, listen to these guys because they are funny as fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, he's a, they're all good guys. They're all good guys. But yeah, no, Nick, Nick's, Nick's a great guy. Um, he's obviously been involved in the MMA scene for, for quite some time, and he, um, He's he's also on the the English MMA board as well, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a great podcast and and they do a, a fantastic job of publicising, especially a lot of the fighters in the in the region. But yeah, no, no so Molly was um, oh, yeah, it was this, this this was quite tough. Molly was one of the fighters who was billed to compete at UFC London, which obviously got called off. Um, that was a, an extremely uh, you know stressful time for her leading in. Um, but because she was one of the last events to be cancelled, I think on this new Fight Island um, that they're talking about putting together or that they, they have put together, she's going to be one of the first picks to go over and compete. Mm. Um, so no no official date as of yet, um, but she's literally in her, um, in, her, in her backyard, in camp, training um, and, and making sure she stays on top of things in case she gets the call up. Hmm. You don't know where Fight Island is, do you? you know, in, no insight. No I don't. Care. I don't. I'm, no. I, everyone's trying to find out, and no, no, I really do not know. I don't I, even think the fighters get told until they actually. It's one of them, um, you know, get blindfolded and flown in, <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. It'd be like what? It'd be like that SAS show, you know? They'll have yeah. a, they'll have a guy doing the voiceover going. Francis Ngano was taken out the back by Ant Middleton and questioned about his past. It'll have a voiceover <laughs> like that on it. I actually, uh, I actually think it might be not an island like we think it is. I don't think it's an island offshore. I think it might be an island on a lake. Yeah, potentially. Or potentially. an island in a river. So it might yeah. be a classic island where, because people are like, oh, it's in the, it's in the Virgin Islands. It's in, you know, the Bahamas. It's here. It's there. I think it might be in a lake. Yeah, yeah, it could, it could well be. I mean, they're being really cryptic about it. I just. 
I know Dana's obviously building it up quite quite big in terms of you know he's got everything set up, accommodation and training space and places to compete. I know they're also really working with the um, the uh, Nevada governor as well to to use Apex. Um, obviously they've got Apex built out in Las Vegas, and you know it seems a bit of a shame, particularly if you can do it behind closed doors, for them to not be able to utilize that. Uh, but no, it's it's going to be interesting how it plays out, and I'm sure like. Like a lot of MMA fans, I was, um, you know, absolutely made up to see to see the event happen the other night and, and get a bit of little shred of normality back to things in this crazy situation. What did you think of that um, main event, by the way, as a oh. as a sidestep? You know, mate, it was. I think someone said this the other day. In fact, I was watching a, a podcast by um, so Eddie Hearn, Matchroom Boxing. Um, and he was doing it the other day and he was talking to some guys um it it was a bit disturbing i actually thought watching just watching tony take that much punishment um you know to, speaking of another tony tony bellew the boxer was on the podcast with eddie and he said it was really actually frightening to watch that guy just get beat up for pretty much four and a half rounds by gaichi um but yeah, I don't think there was any doubt that that you know we can say Tony's tough, but I just thought it was going to be a bit more of a contest. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Gaethje. I think it was a combination of factors. I think Gaethje has been massively underestimated for for how good he actually is. Number one, but I also think, and and I know Tony mentioned this, it's been a long camp for that guy. You know, he's obviously been preparing since November. Um, he crazily made weight three weeks ago for a fight that didn't happen which probably wasn't the best idea as well so yeah no not not taking nothing away from from Gaethje it was a brilliant performance and he absolutely beat that man to death uh but yeah I don't think that was the the best version of Tony that we saw either but yeah it was it was crazy absolutely crazy I think it's I think it's an interesting thing you said there because um yeah no respect to both fighters uh awesome to watch and it was a it's a great fight and you know I'm a big fan of of uh, both of those fighters but I think you're right I think I think another thing as well that the lads on the Fight Disciples spoke about, which is an interesting thing, Tony making weight over uh, two or three weeks ago as a kind of a point, uh, or he was making a point that you know that he was on weight, that weight cut, you know, doing that, whilst admirable, may not have helped his cause and, and having a yeah. long training camp. I think that's part of it. I think then... Yeah, and, and bearing in mind... Yeah, sorry, bear, bearing in mind, I think he probably did it as well, not really knowing that this event was going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, so he was, he was proving that point and... We all know what Tony's about. We know what what type of character he is, and you know he, he, I think he's trying to trying to prove the point that he was ready and he was ready to go and fight. But uh, yeah, for for sure that would have had a big knock on. Um, but yeah, I was just I was really overwhelmed by how one-sided it actually was. It was crazy, crazy fight. Yeah. And I actually thought that Justin Gaethje's gas tank wouldn't last the five rounds. I thought in round three it would start turning, but it actually he kept a nice pace. I thought he was very well controlled. Uh, Trevor Whitman was telling him to just take the edge off the punches and you know when he was hitting him it was actually kind of I actually enjoyed watching it with no crowd it was you could kind of focus yeah. on the fight from a technical perspective I actually enjoyed it I was kind of I was probably more engaged because I sometimes I find the crowd with the screaming and roaring gets a bit annoying and um kind of zoned in and, you, and hearing those crack of those shots you could really appreciate like how hard these guys are getting hit and they only they're at 70 kilos so they're probably in the in the octagon at like probably no more than 80 kilos. So not massive guys, but by God, could they crack and you could hear it. 
But I was yeah. also surprised as well why Tony Ferguson did not attempt to take it to the ground at any stage. It was it was quite yeah. interesting. I thought yeah. he would have he would have went for something. He's very good on the ground, very crafty. He's got some crafty entries, you know. And and we're not just engaged. He's an, an excellent wrestler, but he probably hasn't been really tested from a submission point of view from what I have seen in the UFC. So I'm surprised that Tony didn't take it down there after two or three rounds. So. Yeah, I, I think it might have been, like you say, you know, Gaethje's been wrestling since he's four years old. Mm. Um, he's very, very, very accomplished. You know, he's got absolutely fantastic takedown defence. Um, and as you say, you know, Tony is a, well, if you, you look at his, you know, his, his record, some of the submissions that he's made are absolutely fantastic. So I don't know whether it was a case of that both of them were expecting the other to kind of counter that game and thought, you know what, I'm just going to stand it up because they're expecting me to take it to the ground. Or, yeah, but like you say, you, you would have expected Tony, given that, um, you know, Gaethje, because I mean, Gaethje's one of them guys who wants to keep it standing up. He wants it to be tough. He wants it to be a brawl, mm. a fight. You know, so why he didn't, he didn't tra- change tack? But again, I think it was probably Tony's character about trying to prove a point of how tough he was and, you know, it's like, well, I want it to be a stand-up as well. But, yeah, I think you're exactly right, mate. It really surprised me. Um, he could have just... I mean, even if either in the earlier rounds have either changed tact and tried to do that, like you say, just to gas him a little bit and then bring it back up and, and mm-hmm. fight it just seemed really strange. But, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was certainly entertaining to watch. But, man, like you say, without the crowd, just watching that punishment and listening to those shots... Hmm. And then, I mean, another funny one is that, you know, the, the guys on, on Eddie Hearn's podcast were talking about this as well, how not having a crowd just changes the perception of certain fighters, you know, whether they're able to to, to manage that or not. You know, some people really thrive and feed off the energy of, of um, the crowd. And then, you know, other you know to other people, it's just kind of like sparring, you know, so it's it's a bit different. But yeah, different dynamic and yeah, good, good, good fights. Well, pretty much the majority of the fights were, were brilliant to watch. So yeah, good. It was, it was it was nice. It was nice to have a few fights on, and we got some more this week coming up as well. Before yeah. we before we move off the topic of this, uh, I have a prediction, and I want to. I'm going to pu- publicly put it out here now, which I think will be a, a wise, a, a wise choice to make. And you can tell me what you think about this, Carol, as an MMA fan. I think Gaethje versus Khabib for the undisputed title, co-main event, Ferguson versus McGregor. That way, if one drops out. Of either, we we our main event. We can promote someone up. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Um, I think McGregor Tony would be an absolutely brilliant fight. It's a listen. At the end of the day, we want to see we want to see Tony fight Khabib. We want to see Tony fight McGregor. We want to see McGregor fight Gaethje. Exactly. Um, you know, so exactly like you say, those those are four guys we want to see fight each other. Um, I think someone mentioned the other day, though, and this might be a valid point, looking at the punishment that Tony took, do you think he's going to be the same guy ever again? Do you think he's going to be the same fighter? Because that, that, that was some punishment he took the other day. Yeah, I'm not sure. It was, um, yeah, it was, it was crazy to watch. If anybody hasn't watched it, I'd encourage you to watch it if you're a fan. And if you're not a fan, don't watch it because it's pretty gruesome. If it's your first MMA fight to watch, it's pretty... Uh, he was nearly out on his feet there towards the end. I've never seen him look like that. You know, I, Look, I hope he comes back. He's, he's, he's good to watch. I, I do have actually some questions about it, which actually is a nice segue into uh, training and training load and physiological kind of approaches to fighters because 
I actually wrote an article myself on Sonny Brown. I don't know if you listen to Sonny Brown's podcast here in Australia. He's got the Sonny Brown breakdown. Um, pretty interesting guy, kind of talks about philosophy, yeah. martial arts, and so on. He's got a great YouTube channel where he breaks down fights. But uh, myself and Sonny wrote an article for BJJ Scout, I think about a year and a half ago, talking about Tony's approach to training. It seems like he never stops. Like he just has yeah. his training camp goes for weeks and weeks, and it's 120%. He's out running at like four o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the morning. He's hitting bits of wood. He's doing these crazy routines. If you follow him on Instagram or any sort of social media, he does crazy sorts of uh, ballistic exercises. It's a wonder like he's not walking around, you know, injured the whole time. Well, he did have an injury, obviously, a while ago. You've got to think maybe yeah. lack of sleep and uh, maybe overtraining would have led to this. Um, what's your thoughts on on how these fighters actually approach their training load and, and recovery it's a very broad question yeah. but we can yeah no that. no it's i mean it's a great question I, I suppose i can answer it from a couple of different fronts really so i mean my my predominant interest is is on the weight making elements of what these guys do leading into competition uh, but I, I have managed to do a lot you know a, a fair amount of inquiry into the the training and then i've also done some sleep measurements which which we can probably talk about a little bit later on more so, I know you obviously did that great study where you looked at it uh, in the combined study that you did with Reed, uh, looking at the effect of the water load acutely. I've got some nice, nice, nice sleep data that we looked at over eight weeks, um, looking at the effect of the overall energy availability on that. But going around houses and to answer your question, we've got a my, myself and uh, Professor James Morton have got a great PhD student at the moment, a guy called Chris Kirk. He actually presented at the ACSM. Um, special interest group for combat sports yesterday, and he's he's looking into this uh, in terms of the way MMA fighters you know train. Uh, but before I get into that, my my personal opinion on it, and I think it goes back to what we were discussing earlier. I think it's archaic. Uh, I think it's crazy. I think there's still a lot of this no pain, no gain. You know, if you're not crawling out of the gym, kind of thing. You know, you you haven't trained enough. I don't think the concept of recovery or, you know, super compensation from training is even a, a thing that exists in a lot of, you know, athletes and coaches' minds. Um, so, yeah, go, going around the houses, I, I just think it's crazy. They obviously need to be very conditioned. They obviously need to be very fit, especially in, a, in an event like MMA where you've got so many broad disciplines. But when you're going to take that amount of punishment, you also need to be smart you know, I think a lot of combat sport guys get really frustrated when it comes to sport scientists because immediately they think, oh, well, you're just going to tell me to do less. And it's like, no, I'm not going to tell you to do less. In, in certain instances, I'm going to tell you to do more, but when you need to do it and, and appropriately, yeah. you know, around like, you know, in order to recover and, and enhance what we're trying to do. But no, Chris, Chris's PhD at the minute is, is bringing out some fantastic work. Like I say, yesterday he presented and... You know, he, he showed these. He's, he went around four separate gyms um, in in our local area. You know, some high level gyms who all train in different ways. But he's basically predominantly showed in that study that total training time, and this is irrespective of whether you're competing or not. But total training time, week by week, exactly the same. Total training time, Monday to Friday, exactly the same. Training load, the same. Um, so then, monotony and strain are exactly the same. And it's just, um, I, I just don't think these guys definitely technically understand how to train, but I don't think they know how to train physically 
to condition themselves for the event. I mean, bearing in mind, we, we don't particularly have a great understanding of the, you know, the physiological underpinnings of the demands of the event because it's, it's really difficult to measure. But I just don't think they've got a good understanding of that. Um, so, yeah, when you, you, know, you see a lot of these guys doing some crazy shit, it's just like, you know, you, you wish that they just listened to some, you know, some better informed guidance. Um, you know, there's, there's a time to be rough and tough, but there's a, you know, there's a time to be smart as well. So this is an interesting thing, Carl, because like you said, there's no real, you know, probably verified or validated approach to this, but I'm not a physiologist, right? But I've been doing martial arts most of my life and playing rugby and being involved in, you know, crazy events like long distance running and so on. And I obviously have my own ideas as a fan and as a scientist and, you know, then as an amateur athlete. One thing I often say to guys when they often say to me, the, the question will be, how should I train for a fight? What's the best way? And the next sentence out of her mouth, which I know is coming, because I heard on Joe Rogan, you're best off doing this, this, and this. And I heard on Joe Rogan, you're best off doing, you know, your weights in a camp and, you know, uh, doing, you know, basically eating during this period and going paleo and going keto. And it's like, yeah. you can't do four diets at once, right? So anyway, yeah. the, fir- the question I say to, the, say to them is, what type of fighter do you want to be? And they go, what do you yeah. mean? I go, what type of fighter do you want to be? Do you want to be like a Nick Diaz where nobody can take the window of you? You're going to go all day long. You're going to pepper people with shots. You're going to wear them down. And the longer the fight goes, the better you feel. And the better you feel, the longer you can go. Do you want to be that type of fighter where you pepper guys away and then drag them to the ground and choke them? Or do you want to be, you know, Francis Ngannou where you go in and you just windmill guys and try and knock them out in the first minute? Or do you want to be more like a GSP, really explosive and take guys to the ground? Like, what kind of fighter do you want to be? And it's really interesting because it just said, uh, I just, I just want to do MMA. Yeah, but what kind of fighter do you want to be? And they cannot articulate what type of fighter you want to be. And so from my, my opinion is like, you need to understand what fighter you want to be and what fight style you want to be. And then you train to be that fighter. Now, if you don't know what type of fighter you want to be, I'm sure your coach probably would say to you, oh, you know, Carl, you're better at the stand-up. Ian, you're better on the ground. You know, I'm sure a good coach or a decent coach would know after working with you, even just in the gym before a fight, what type of fighter you want to be. Like I look at myself and I think good VO2 max, good on the ground. I'm probably going to want rudimentary striking to keep it going, you know, keep out a person's way. When I get a chance, I want to close the distance and drag them to the ground. You might be more of a guy, Carl, that's a striker, which you are. Yeah. You're like, right, I'm going to win and I'm going to absolutely light this dude up and give him no space and take the wind out of him. So that's a, that's a kind of a, a comment I'll often ask, a, a kind of retort to your question. Yeah, you have absolutely 110% hit the nail on the head there. Um, I'm, in fact, I'm so glad that you've said that because in independence, we don't know a lot about the events. We don't know a lot about the physiology. We don't know a lot about a lot of things. But what we do know, so, so prior to, to going to the whole point of what type of fighter you know, you are, the event is, is, you know, minimum three, five minutes uh, round. So it's 15 minutes long, 15 minutes long. One of the big things that absolutely drives me and a lot of the guys in John Moore's crazy is that these guys just won't do any aerobic based conditioning. And it's like, look, you, you don't need to measure the, the physiological interactions of what happens in an MMA fight. You just got to look at classical physiology to know that a 15 minute event that's interspersed with you know, actions of high explosivity, grappling, 
you know, potentially continuous work along five, along five minutes with limited recovery is going to be a combination of, of, you know, energetic system demands. But if it goes the whole uh, three rounds, and particularly if it goes the whole five rounds, as you've just said, you're going to need an engine. So you're yeah. going to need blood. You're going to need to be aerobically fit. What drives me mad about a lot of these guys, and, and this is the, some of the great work that I say that Chris Kirk's doing, is they're just not willing to do that. They're just not willing. You know, a lot of it is about, well, you know, I'll get fit sparring or I'll do hill sprints or I'll do track, you know, and, I, and it's short duration. And, and you're like, you're fighting for between 15 to 25 minutes long. And like you say, that's if it goes that long. That's where, you know, ultimately that's worst case scenario. Um, but you've just, you've just hit the nail on the head. I one one of the first conversations that I ever had with Molly's coach was, um, you know, and and I, and I think this really surprised them. And and Molly's coach Paul Rimmer is absolutely brilliant. He's he's one of the he's one of the the few coaches that I've worked with in combat sports across the years who, who really adopts this now uh, and really you know really really understands it and, and how it's going to add to what he's doing. Uh, and I, and as you said, someone was like, right, how's the fight going to go? And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, how, how, how have you prescribed how she's going to fight this opponent? And he was like, well, yeah, yeah, I know what I wanted to do, but why is that important to you? And I was like, exactly like you said, I was like, well, is it going to go the full three? You know, is it going to be a, is it going to be a grind out? Does she need to have the longevity to keep going? Is she going to be standing up predominantly? You know, so is it a kind of stick and move fight where, you want it to be in and out and moving all the time. Is it going to be a fight where she's got to grapple and defend? Is it going to be all the above? Is it going to be an absolute, absolute all-out war for, for, for the three rounds? That is going to dictate how we're going to train her from an S&C perspective in the gym and also how we're going to do a conditioning. And he was just like, this is fantastic. So he, he explained and he was like, this is the way I wanted to fight. This is what we wanted to, to be able to do. And every single fight camp now, it's like, okay, Rim, how, does, how is she fighting for this event? And he lays it down to me, and that is how the conditioning is prescribed for this athlete, based on the way they need to fight. And you, like I say, mate, you have you've, you've just you've you've just put it straight to the point there. You know what what makes Diaz so good in terms of the fact that he's just got an engine. I mean, I, I don't I don't think a lot of MMA fans actually know this. The guy does triathlons. Yeah, he's he's a, he's an absolute beast. You know, he's. He, He's an endurance athlete. He's, he's crazy, the, long, the longevity that this guy's able to got. But, you know, it's, it's not just magic. He doesn't go around smoking pot all day and, and just have the lungs of a, <laughs> of, a, of, a, you know, of a marathon runner. He actually trains to, to get that. Um, so, yeah, mate, that, that's the big thing with it. But, you know, the, the biggest bugbear for me is, is if it's going to go the distance. Because, like I say, it's, it's okay for Nganu. If you're going to be in Nganu and you're going to put them away in the first minute, then, no, you don't need an engine. You know, you just got to be a big, strong, powerful mm. beast that with bot with dynamite in your hands to put them away. But uh, as we've seen with Ngannou, when it goes the distance, exactly and he has to, yeah. yeah, exactly when it goes the distance, you know, and he has to defend the takedowns or he has to work in the ground. He, he's he's done he's done for because he just hasn't got the diversity to be able to, to 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 put up with that. You know, so you're exactly right, mate. What type of fighter do you want to be? And that should dictate. The way you're gonna, the way you're gonna fight. I mean, it's 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 similar to what we do with the pro boxers. You know, it's like, what type of fight do you want this to be? You know, do you want to be on them every 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 second of every minute of every round, or you know, do you want it to be very offensive? Do you want it to be very defensive? Um, and and it is amazing. You can really, really, really win fights against better opponents through just conditioning as well. Like you, you see it all the time. 
Um, I, I'm very fortunate that I work with another really good good fighter in Liverpool, a guy called Jazza Dickens, who's in the MTK Golden Contract Super Series tournament. Um, and he fought a very good good guy in the, in the semi-finals of that called Lee Wood. Um, and we worked on this guy's conditioning. Like, I mean, this guy's a bit of a freak anyway, to be honest. He comes in with a ridiculous VO2 at the start of the camp. But by the end of it, this guy's VO2 was like marathon level. It was like you could literally go out and be a, you know, a decent middle distance runner at what you've got. So what sort of VO2 max car did he have? So he started the camp. I mean, like I say, this guy is a freak. He's, he's Jazzer is a freak, but he started off at 62. Um, mm. And at the end of camp meet, he was 74. Jesus. Now, for anybody listening that doesn't understand VO2 max or what it is, but it's basically a measure of your aerobic capacity. And anything yeah. over 55 is what you classify as superior. So it's good. Yeah. yeah. And so you generally, I think, I think Lance Armstrong was like 69 or 70. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. So this, this guy, the, yeah, this, this, this guy was, was fit anyway, as you say, because over 55 is pretty good. And, um, you know, a lot with a lot of the, um, a lot of combat sports athletes, they come in and, I mean, I've had combat sports athletes come in at the beginning of camp and get like 42, you know, so if you can get them into the fifties, you're doing very, very yeah. well. Um, but yeah, his opponents, he, he he went out and he set a pace. It was a lightning pace. And his opponent was like, I kind of laid back and, and rested and took it and let him win the first three or four rounds because I just thought he's going to tire. You know what I mean? He, he, he won't be able to keep that up all night. He said, and it was by the time I got to about like the fifth and the sixth, he was like, shit, this guy's not slowing down. I'm going to have yeah, to start. Yeah. And, but by that time, it's too late. It's, it's done. The fight's over because he set the pace and now you're trying to get into the fight. So, um, yeah. No, mate, you're right. What type of fighter do you want to be? And that is going to dictate the way you need to train. Um, you know, Carl, I really realized a few years ago, and not that I was having any fights, but I realized that how important physical conditioning, particularly aerobic conditioning, was for combat sports. So about maybe four years ago, I had finished um, a sort of a training regime about six months for a 100K run. And I finished a run, and I hit my time that I wanted to do. I finished in sort of the top... 15% and I was really happy but I decided in the off season of running across the winter I was going to do something different and um, now I constantly train jiu-jitsu all year round as well but I thought oh I'll do some boxing there was a Cuban boxing place in the in the city and um my my VO2 max is, is quite good like I think I had it tested that year before this 100k run and I was sitting at 69 so fairly decent yeah, yeah. And so I was in this in this <laughs> in this Cuban boxing gym I'm very rudimentary striking right but we're doing these like just like body sparring drills and just moving around. It's a small little place. And of course I was just jumping around and not that big, but not that small either, about 78 kilos and five foot 10. And the guy I was with just went to me, can you just stop? And I went, what? He goes, you're not doing proper footwork to get out of the way. He goes, just stop. I said, if I stop, you're going to hit me. He goes, yeah, cause you're not boxing correctly. I was like, fuck that. I'm not going to stand there and get hit by you. And I just had that kind of thing on the walking home that evening was, even if you're not a very good striker, you know, you're not well-trained or not very defensively. If you have a good engine, you can still get out of the way. Oh, mate, you know? I, I agree. I agree. We, I mean, I have this debate with some coaches sometimes in terms of the like, you know, you know, fame, the famous guys once said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Right. And, <laughs> and that's absolutely right. You know, you, you can't, you can't train a chin. You can't condition it. That's, that's something that you've got to have. But I, I tell you now, mate, very, very similar story to yourself. I've beaten some very, very good guys in my past career who were far better than me, purely just because I had a better engine. 
And there is no better feeling on planet Earth than when you're fighting someone and you start getting through that bout and you're looking at them and you're going, you're done. I've, I've literally got you. I could, I could keep this going all day long and you are done. It's, it's over. You know what I mean? The fight's, the fight's over because you just can't keep up with this pace. So, yeah, mate, I, I completely agree. It's, um, and again, in terms of working with, uh, with Molly, I mean, the great thing about Molly was her, her background was boxing. So, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, me me and the team, you know, turning her fortunes around with some kind of genius. Uh, it's not. It's just simple, basic, you know, training principles. One of the first things that we got her to do is we got her starting start back running again. Um, and she, you know, she's running that well now. She's, she's like running half marathons and things like that. Mm. And she's just able to maintain a pace throughout a fight for as long as she likes. Uh, because she's just got such a good engine, you know. She's a good fight, good fighter anyway. Can strike, can move, uh, but she's got a she's got a good engine on her. So, yeah, and and I think from an an athlete perspective, with me, I I kind of learned this probably through a, a little bit of trial and error. Because I remember when I first started training, it's fun funny this actually, um, you know, in Taekwondo and Taekwondo is obviously a it used to be a three 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 minute event. Now it's a three two minute event, but the answer back then was just running. It was like run and run and run and run you know I was probably a decent little middle distance runner when I first started doing, <laughs> doing combat sports um but then lo and behold you're getting into the round and um you know you're getting to the end and it might have been quite a high intensity lot of actions and you are buggered you're like what the hell is going on but then you'd last throughout the whole fight you'd be okay and then your recovery in the minute would be phenomenal you'd be like yeah. oh I feel great now and it was like oh and then you know the coach by probably by some miracle uh, stumbled upon high intensity interval training. He was like, right, we're going to try this out. So we start doing hits and hits and hits and hits. And it was like, okay, this is great. And then lo and behold, we're all in the round and it's like, oh, I'm able to go for the two minutes, but Jesus, the, that, that third minute, I am done. I'm buggered. And why is that? Because we've stopped running because we haven't got yeah. the aerobic release. And it wasn't until the end, mate, that we really started to figure out, you know, what if we do this in combination? That's the answer. You know, we need we need to challenge the physiology of what's required. Um, but yeah, mate, you, you're right. The, these guys train crazily. I think a lot of the time they, they really overdo it. Um, you know, they're not periodizing appropriately. They're not training in order to condition themselves smartly and for the type of fighter that they need to be. And that leads on to some really negative effects in in health and performance. Um, one of which is is obviously sleep. Yeah, it's interesting. Like that's a that's a, a nice segue there because Carol, um, I'm looking here at, at Molly just as an example because you're working with her. Like she had one fight there in London. Um, sorry, she had her first fight there in Liverpool. Then she had a fight in London, and then one in in, in South Carolina, and then one in Boston. Now, one yeah. of the reasons why I invited Carol on the podcast because Carol is the very first person I've ever seen present data around sleep with MMA athletes. Um, I've had some conversations with. Dr. Corey Peacock, who I had in the podcast before, who works with people like Michael Johnson. He's worked with Rumble, uh, Rumble Johnson at Light Heavyweight. He works um, with Michael Chandler. He works with boxers as well in South Florida. So Corey's probably the only other person as well um, who has collected sort of sleep data and looked at those variables as well and taken more of a scientific approach to train athletes. But um, one of the things that a lot of these fighters experience, and um, I've had, had a few chats to different fighters about this, is is jet lag obviously so yeah. you've got sleep while you're at home in training camps you've got sleep around the recovery and then you've got um the whole jet lag issue and sleep as well um 
And so we just had a paper published uh, a few weeks ago in the British Journal of Sports Medicine reviewing all of these strategies. And what's really interesting on that is that there's basically sweet FA out there on, on interventions to manage jet lag in athletes. But I suppose, Carl, how, how do you, how do you um, monitor sleep with these athletes and what sort, of, um, what sort of work do you do with them around trying to improve sleep? Because you've spoken there about the physiology part, like the strength and conditioning yeah. part, which is like, you know, what I always say, I was like, that's like going up the mountain, but coming down the mountain is the, is the recovery side. Yeah, no, no, you're exactly right. I mean, first, first thing I have to say, mate, the, the caveat is I'm, you know, you, I know you mentioned you're not a physiologist and I'm, I'm certainly not a sleep physiologist. Um, so I have to give a, a, a big shout out to a friend and colleague um, who, who really helped me with this um, in terms of, you know, the measurements and, and understanding sleep. So a guy called, Doc, well, he's, he's just recently passed his PhD called Dr. Craig Thomas. Um and yeah, I, I'm really fortunate Craig that Thomas. being involved. Yeah, he, Craig is he, Thomas. Is he in the US? Uh, no, I don't think he's. He, I, he might have a postdoc over there now. I don't think he is. But basically, the, the quick backstory with Craig. Craig has just completed a PhD on on sleep and athletic populations. Um, we're really lucky, and John Moore's, like say, it's one of the you know top sports science institutions in in the UK and, and one of the top 10 in the world that similar that I heard you might talk about this when you, you know, you lasted um, your talk at the ACSM a couple of weeks ago, we have access to uh, polysonography. We've got um, obviously um, actigraph measurements for sleep. And uh, we've got a couple of guys who are kind of interested in the sleep space now. So Craig was kind of fundamental in coming and getting involved and, and kind of helping me to, to monitor the sleep in these guys. But um yeah, what the the measures that we basically done um, is is very simple. Uh, we used uh, actigraphy with these guys. So um, the one that we actually used um, was called, I think it was called the Acti Watch. It's by yeah. a, a UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a UK based one. I have to confess, mate. I have no idea whether they're any good or anything like that. No, they um, are and good, then, and know, they've been they've been validated again. So that the validated, where the validate yeah, these is um, polysomnography and the Acti Watch has yeah, been validated. So that's what Craig told me. Craig was like, "Look, if we're you know, we if we're going to do field measurements, this is the best way. It's best way to utilize it." So I mean, going back a little bit, I suppose regressing. I I. I am hugely, hugely into the value of sleep. Uh, I cannot un- understate it myself. Um, I know when I was an athlete um, how important sleep was to me. In fact, I have to actually confess why I got interested in this stuff as well was, um, and I don't know if there's any research in this, this is something that I've been massively interested to see, was I that the way I used to sleep, to be honest with you, mate, prior to, um, to competition, so the night before, was awful. And I really, really, really think it had a, a huge knock-on effect to how I competed uh, in the latter stages of my career because I just couldn't sleep. You know, and then a lot of the strategies that we talk about now as well, I mean, I remember I come up with the, the, the amazing idea of, of leaving the lights on and, you know, raising the heat to try and make, make me more sleepy and watching the television and probably doing the, you know, the, the anti-sleep strategy was what I was doing to try and try and get to, get myself to sleep in terms of sleep hygiene. So... I know the value of it, and even to this day, if I um, if I don't get into a, a decent pattern of sleep, it really affects me negatively. But yeah, going around the houses. So, like I say, part of my or, or my PhD was was looking at weight making, and I, I become really interested in this concept around weight making of energy availability. 
Um, so for those who aren't familiar about energy availability, very simply, we think about energy balance, and that's the the energy that you intake minus the energy uh, that that or the energy outtake, the energy that comes out. Um, energy availability is a concept where we look at the amount of energy left for primary physiological functions. So after we've used the energy for exercise and for you know for moving about, how much have we got left? for our organs to work and, and our brain to function and things like that. So we, we have these certain thresholds of energy availability now where if we go below them, the, the hypothesis or the purported effect is that it starts to have, have a, a negative consequences on these, um, on these physiological functions. And for those who work in combat sports, typically across a fight camp, you will be below the lowest energy threshold the entire time. And there's nothing you can really do about that because in order to make weight, you've, you've got to be below that threshold. So, yeah, one of, one of the things I was really interested in measuring throughout some of the research that I've done is sleep. And I was like, okay, what, what are the consequences of being in low energy availability? And then what are the consequences of, you know, continued training or, you know, the, this continued training camp on sleep? So, yeah, we got some really nice data. It's, it's only in a case study. Um, so it's only in, in, in a couple of different individuals looking at things like, you know, total sleep time, efficiency, latency, um, and stuff like that, uh, from a point of view of not only the energy availability, but also, you know, the training camp and, and come up with some nice data, which, uh, which Craig, uh, originally we were going to put it in one big case study, but I think the, the sleep, sleep stuff's been so interested or so interesting in isolation that Craig's going to write it up for a case study, an individual case study himself. Oh, and, and so just out of interest then, Carol, what sort of measures do you remember that you, you saw with those fighters in training camp? What's the average kind of sleep that you're getting per night? Yeah, so so funnily enough, I mean, I suppose the the, the initial hypothesis for me was going to be, um, okay, we're going to see an effect of a reduction in energy availability. So the longer this goes on, we're going to see a reduction in it, or, or sorry, we're going to see an effect on measures of or markers of sleep throughout the camp. And then obviously as the camp continues, you know, we see in some of the classical sleep literature, uh, you know, like kind of training, training density and stuff has, has a real effect on sleep. So we were expecting that as well. So, yeah, we, we used actigraphy and we did this for every single night throughout the entire eight weeks. Um, we also had kind of, I suppose, a control week. So we, we followed them in the week in the week after after they'd made weight and they'd, they'd competed. Um, and then we did that in line with the consensus sleep diary as well. Um, so Craig, Craig got both of those measures and then and then analysed it. And to be completely honest with you, mate, to our to our total surprise, despite the gradual reductions in energy availability, um, total sleep time was was absolutely the same. Um, there was no real, you know, reduction of that. Um, it was pretty much. I think I remember Craig saying that his sleep time was above uh, four hundred and twenty minutes, um, which Seven I think. Hours, in a, yeah. Yeah, in a control group is you know is 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 pretty good. Um, uh, I think there was there's some stuff by John Leader from from EIS back in 2012 who looked at you know kind of like the you know a, a good average. Um, and then crazily as well, his sleep efficiency actually went up. Um, it was above 85 percent at all all time points. But we we looked at the first four weeks uh, and his sleep efficiency I think was about 88 percent. And then in the latter stages of the camp, you know, leading into the weigh-in, his sleep efficiency actually increased to, to over 90%. I think it was about 92, 92%. 
Um, so yeah, re remarkably, uh, and again, this this is obviously only you know limited data in a in a in in a few individuals, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of negative effects of, of energy availability on the on the athlete's sleep. And we spoke to them about it as well. We were like, you know, are you, are you finding that this is having an effect? Are you finding that it's you know it's 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 having a negative consequence? And a lot of them kind of mentioned that, funnily enough, you know, the further I go into camp, I actually find myself sleeping better. Um, it didn't really have any any main effect, and then we looked at you know those two factors: total sleep time and also um, total um, sleep efficiency across the weeks. And again, um, other than you know the actual training, I suppose density, um, that was the only thing that really negatively affected sleep. You know, when when the training volume was quite high, um, that that had a negative effect on potentially the way they'd sleep. Uh, and when it was a little bit lower, they, they slept better. So, yeah, uh, going around the houses there, mate, and probably not making a huge deal of sense for some no, no, no. It, 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 it's really interesting. And a couple of things there to, to look at, actually, which is which is interesting, is the sleep efficiency as it improves over time. What that means, basically, yeah. is that athletes fell asleep quicker. So when they went to bed, they were basically utilizing that time better, so they fell asleep quicker. And they also had less awakenings overnight as well. Now, we would probably yeah. hypothesize that as we went into more of a fight camp, that awakenings would go up because of training volume slash training training volume. So the number yeah. of sessions that they're doing or the number of minutes that they spend training and then also the intensity of that or the training load. But I think what may have happened there, Carl, is that the training load and the training volume, I would presume that you guys were managing that so well and just had these incremental improvements uh, in terms of increasing the load and it wasn't like a, a massive change or a massive delta where they went from like you know an increase of 40 percent one week um, and because you were gradually doing that and allowing for adaptation it actually had minimal disruption on the sleep that's what i would hypothesize what's going on there yeah because what right. i see is what's happening in athletes is they basically go right i've got a fight in six weeks let's fucking smash this and they start on day one and day one to day 36 is just smashing it every day two a day and there's no ramp up period whatsoever and they're just redlining then for six weeks yeah no you're right i mean another thing with this as well i i have to you know put a caveat this wasn't just observational, a lot of this work, this was actually interventional. So this was part of that case study that I presented where we were, you know, we were controlling diet and we were giving them a training program and we were assessing energy availability. But I have to admit the, the couple of athletes that I have, have monitored have all been pretty good um, when it comes to the sleeping habits. Um, you know, they, they broadly have pretty good sleep hygiene as well. About the only one, who and I, I'd, I'd probably go into this a little bit more uh, shortly is Molly. Uh, Molly has ADHD, so she struggles to get to sleep, you know, most of the time anyway. So we've had to kind of work hard on coming up with some strategies for her to help her with her, um, with a, you know, with a sleep overall because a, a bloody mind's going. 10 to the dozen the majority so, of the time. So, so what do you do there, Carl? Because we've got a few other uh, amateur athletes like that that we deal with. So I'm just wondering out of interest, what do you do with those guys? Yeah, so I, I think, it's, first of all, mate, I have to admit, Mo Molly is just an absolute consummate professional. Um, she's one of the, one of the, she's an absolute joy to work with. Um, it's it's hard to take credit because she pretty much just listens and, and puts stuff into place. But all the type of sleep strategies that you, you know, so some of the great sleep physiologists kind of purport. So, you know, we try and get her to focus on, um, you know, towards the back end of the evening, you know, maybe having a hot shower, um, 
you know, trying to raise her, raise her temperature just a little bit. Uh, when she goes to bed, she has a little bit of a time where she does play on her phone, but then she'll put that down and she'll focus around, you know, maybe reading a book uh, or, or having a conversation with a partner and things like that. And she's just got into a nice routine um, in terms of sleep hygiene, of, of creating an atmosphere that is more conducive to sleep. And I just don't think people understand how important that is, you know, of, of getting into a, a solid routine that you can follow that, that gets you to that point where, like you say, not, not just the, the amount of sleep that you have, but the quality and the efficiency of the sleep that you have is, is good. Um, so it's, it's been a tough process because um, like most of us, you know, Molly spends, spends a long time on a phone. And I think a big strategy with that was like constantly being on a phone all the time and using that as a vehicle to fall asleep. But we, we've just got into a, a pattern and a routine. Um, and where it, where it becomes really affected at its most is, is leading into obviously a fight itself, you know. And a lot of that, I think, just comes down to, um, you know, the, the fight being on the fighter's mind. And I'm certainly not going to profess to say that we've got a, an athlete who sleeps perfectly leading into to competition with Molly because she doesn't. You know, she has relatively poor sleep leading into the fight. Um, but in camp, she, she tends to do, do really well. But what, what I find really interesting as well, to be honest with you, Ian, is how life stresses can actually affect that. You know, so if, if she's had a bad day in training, it affects her sleep. If anything's gone on, I remember leading up to the Lipsky fight when we had to go to Greenville, she was having some issues with a visa. She had a week where she had terrible, terrible sleep performance um, just because this was obviously on her mind. So I th again, I think controlling a lot of the, a lot of the so well, I say controlling, but working in and around the, the social factors that are going on in an athlete's life as well as the training factors is something that's just not really considered. Um, so yeah, those those are some of the things that we've we've tried to delve into. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting as you as you track you know using Molly as an example again to track uh, over the next few fights because you know all all the words are going like she's in contention for a title and when she uh, you know starts to get these bigger fights and moves up the card it'll be interesting to see if there's a difference there in terms of particularly the week before the fight with you know travel and jet lag and then you know, the, the, the big stage, if she's main card or co-main yeah. event or fighting someone like a Valentino Shevchenko, um, who I know the guys and the fight disciples actually have a bit of a thing for, as they do for you, Anna and Jacek. There's a bit of a love <laughs> affair going on there. Some inappropriate comments, which I'm, I presume their partners listen to. But um, <laughs> uh, I'd be interested to see what happens with the sleep then, um, because I yeah. wonder if that changes. Yeah. I think that's another factor as well that's going to change, because I think... There's one thing getting into the UFC and there's one thing having a few fights, which would be nerve wracking for some people. But as the, as I start climbing that ladder and moving up more and more pressure, I've worked with a couple of fighters and the media that they have to do the week before the fight is absolutely crackers. So it'd be very interesting to see how that would change. Yeah. I mean, another one, another one that, that is bizarre in this culture as well is, um, a lot of them tend to share rooms, you know, so I know working with MMA guys, it, it'll be like, you get a certain allocation of rooms in terms of you know how many people you know how many people can stay there, the coaches and stuff. And some fighters I work with, they'll have like uh, the partner staying in the room with them, the best mate will be on the couch, you know, the friggin' guy who they befriended on the street about two hours earlier sleeping on the floor. It's like, I mean, I exaggerate, but you know, sometimes you come in and it's like literally a slumber party, and it's like, what the hell is going on? How, how can you? sleep in this environment when you've got all these different distractions you know and again the, the one thing where molly's great is 
leading into the event, um, she pretty much insists on, you know, she needs the room to herself and, and it's her own space and she needs to create an environment that's conducive to sleep. Um, so no, it's, it certainly helps mate when you've got somebody who understands the importance of sleep. Um, you know, it was, it was funny actually that I, I don't know if you've been watching this, um, new documentary on, um, on the basketball, you know, the, the Chicago yes, Bulls. I have, yeah. I've been watching Yeah, that. which is absolutely fantastic. And I was watching the section, um, you know, where they were talking about um, Jordan having a potential gambling problem. And then yeah. they were like, you know, he was going on and he was like, well, I was in a casino until 1am, 1, 1 2am right, yeah, yeah. and then I was home. You know, I don't know how that's going to have a negative performance. And I was just generally thinking, I was like, well, did you get a good night's sleep? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Did it, you know, is it... Would, would would activity like that be conducive to sleep? So, no, I I personally have, have always, I mean, again, mate, I, I'm literally, I always wanted to be in a military. Um, my, my family's a big, big military family. I think pretty much everybody in the whole family on both sides, um, my mum and my dad's side have been in the military apart from me and my little brother um, because we decided on, on different paths. But I think I would have been useless in the military anyway, being honest with you, mate, because I love me sleep. Um, there's, there's one way all you got to do to torture me is deprive me of sleep and I am I'm, I'm non-operational so for me I've, I've always been a big advocate of it anyway and like you say I think you bring your own biases into things but I'm fortunate that a lot of the athletes that I'm working with at the minute see the value in that um, you know and then and then allow us to do some of these measurements but yeah I, I think it's like I say, it's not my area. I'm certainly no expert, but it's something that I really understand that we need to try and get it, you know, monitor and get a handle on um, in order to, like we were saying before, help the super compensation that we get from the training, you know, because the, you know, the, the, the training is the, uh, you know, the training is the bullet and the, uh, the recovery is the gun. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like you need them in combination. And if, if one's not right, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. No, look, I, I think um, I think the things you're doing there is absolutely bang on. Um, I was on a podcast last year, a guy called Jordan Sullivan, who's got a site called The Fight Dietitian. He works with people. Yeah, like, I was um, on that too. Yeah, Adesanya and and those guys, you know. And I spoke to Jordan exactly about that same point that you're making. I said, the week of a fight, get all those hanger oners out of the room. I said, you see it there yeah. on the countdown shows. I love watching countdown shows and embeddeds because I like to see the absolute ridiculous ridiculousness and the bullshit that goes on before a fight look i understand that fighters want to get around in groups and they want to have a bit of a laugh and they want to have their friends around them but that bedroom should be sacred you see some of these bedrooms there's like three or four lads hanging over the bed playing playstation food everywhere that's their sleeping environment that's supposed to be their sanctuary where they can retreat have some quiet time have some yeah. downtime they don't need to be kicking pizza boxes and dirty underwear off their bed because there's like 15 people in the room that should be like yeah, that should yeah. be sacred for those for those guys. No, so you, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, another it, again, another thing about the culture of this sport is it also tends to be. I mean, I know from from the Olympic combat sports when you go away, and again, I understand the financial implications of this, but you buddied up with people in rooms as well, yeah. um, and that isn't always conducive to sleep. I know when I got to the latter part of my um, my career, I I started to insist on having a single room because it was like I don't want to be around other people you, you you know exactly right in what you're saying that needs to be a, an oasis you know in in the middle of a pretty crazy you know experience that you go through leading into fight weeks it, it needs to be a sanctuary exactly like you've said 
for you to get away and do your thing and follow your own routine. And no, like I say, Mo- Molly's brilliant. And I think at the beginning, because like I say, she, she is quite busy in her mind. She, she liked having a lot of people around to give her distraction. Um, and I think we didn't particularly mind that because the distraction was actually a good thing. You know, she needed that to get her away. But now she's becoming a bit more of a, you know, a professional. Well, she's becoming more considered in her approach and she's understanding that it is building up to these bigger fights and stuff. She's, she's starting to get really, really smart in, in how she deals with it. And, and yet I, I'm over the moon that, you know, in the days leading into the fight, she's like, right, everyone get the fuck out. This is, this, this is my room and, and this is what I need to do. It's all about me now and all about my preparation, which is great. And, and great. So. She's got such a good team around and no one begrudges it as well. So sorry there, mate, I interrupted you. No, I was just saying, and rightly so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's so good for her. And I think just on that point as well, like just, you know, around, around the importance of sleep, but also as well, like I find this when I was at the um, AIS or when I'm down with the super rugby team or with basketball teams, it's really interesting. Like you'll go in between sessions and you'll talk to them, you know, and they'll have these big, like, you know, these big like pads on their legs that are inflating to help with circulation, to be wearing compression gear, they'll be jumping in our hot baths and, and cold baths and putting ice on and getting massage. And then they're only sleeping like five and a half, six hours a night because I'm measuring their sleep. And I'm like, if we look at, if we think, like if, if we look at your kind of model there, Carl, that you put up about, you know, about aerobic conditioning being like nearly, nearly being the base of, for physiological training and support adaptation to a fight, no matter what type of fight you want to be, having that aerobic base is really important, like the kind of base of the pyramid. If we look at the base of the pyramid, then for recovery, sleep is that base and what i find really interesting is that it's free anybody can avail of it you don't have to be in a certain bracket a certain sex gender whatever or have to pay for it and people don't do it but people are willing to go out and spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars over the course of a year on massage and all these other things i'm not saying they're they're not helpful and appropriate because they are but it's just in terms of you want to spend more time on those things and less time on the things that can really help you. Like I, yeah. I said to, I said to an athlete one time, I should just start charging you a hundred dollars for every hour of sleep and just watch you because I reckon then you'd pay me and you do it because you'll, you'll buy all this other shit and do all this other stuff, but you won't actually do what you need to do. You're only sleeping five and a half hours a night. You need to dramatically improve that sleep. Yeah. You know, it's, mate, it's absolutely you, crazy what, what people you, do. You, you're right. You're right. I mean, this, this is something that we teach to the students at the university. Um, it baffles me how people just immediately want to reach for all the sexy stuff and just ignore the very, very basic, simple premises. I mean, like I say, with, with Molly, mate, it, it hasn't been. There's, there's nothing. You know, I think people look at it from the outside in and they go, oh, well, you know, John Moore's, it, you know, it must be some, some really newfangled uh, research or there must be some new approaches or they must have access to a lot of, you know, cool, nifty kits and, don't get me wrong, we, we do do some of that stuff, but some of the biggest changes we made were, were simply just, let's get you sleeping better, let's get you eating better, um, let's control what you eat, let's control a little bit more around how you train and how you recover. And I mean, literally, I mean, we, we've only just started, I mean, people say this to me all the time, you know, from a nutritional point of view, it's like, oh, you know, you know what type of supplements do you have Molly on, you know, for performance? And, and it's like, none. And people yeah. look at you and go, what do you mean? None. You're like, she's, she isn't in on, she's, she isn't on any yet. And I'm like, well, no, come on, you must have her on this and that. And I'm like, well, no, because 
there was no point in even worrying about any of that shite until we got a routine right with the food in the first place. Until until we managed to get that formula where she's able to make weight comfortably. Um, you know, so like the first camp was just eating well in in you know nice nice put nice time phases and and getting her to make weight. The second camp we did it and we played around with it a little bit more and she made weight. The the camp that we did for Boston, we started bringing in some carbohydrate periodization. The next one we do, we might then start playing around with supplements. Supplements are the last thing to, yeah. to, to worry about, you know. And then very similar to what you said, you know, people are like, oh, you know, does she get massage and does she get the? And it was like, well, she does when she needs it. But other than that, it's, you know, time between sessions. It's uh, recovery between sessions, how she recovers and sleeping bloody well. Other than that, uh, you know, all the sexy stuff is is as and when. It's not, you know, it's it's like you said, that's the top of the pyramid, not not the bottom, 110%. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I just had this spinal surgery recently where I had my, my vertebrae fused, you know. And uh, and um, when I was when I had some issues and I wasn't going to jiu-jitsu or I was going in and just like rolling with guys that were smaller and so on, guys were always like, oh, Hey, you should, you know, have you considered getting stem cells? I'm like, oh, really? How does that work? Oh, I don't know, but I just heard that stem cells would work. <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, you should go to a chiro. I'm like, oh, and what's the chiro now about my neck? Well, how would that work? Oh, I don't know. You should just like go. I'm like, man, I've got bad arthritis. Genetics are playing a part here on my spine is, is basically narrowing. Plus, I got a bunch of hernia discs. And plus, I'm 17 years older than you, and I've had the shit kicked out of me too many times. So that's why I have to get it done. I said, so stop listening to Joe Rogan. Stop saying stem cells and get out of my face. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it is. It's always like people are always looking for that. Like I say, they're looking for the 0.001% instead of the, the basic things that we know are going to you know, make the biggest percentage differences. Um but a lot of that does come from, like you say, we live in a digital age and there's a lot of, I mean, it's, I almost feel sorry for a lot of people these days, mate, having to wade through all the bullshit that actually comes yeah. with social media, you know, so it's not a, um, you know, I, I always say, you know, back in the day, you know, I, I wasn't misinformed. I wasn't, you know, wasn't informed at all. But I actually think it's probably even more harder for people these days because the, it's not that they're not informed, that they're probably over-informed on things that one, like you say, they don't understand about and and two, they just don't know how to utilize or put together. Um but yeah, it it sounds a bit crap as a sports scientist sometimes as well when you have conversations with these people and they're like, oh, you know, so um, you know what it was funny actually I had a conversation with somebody the other day, you know, what works? Well, not not a lot really, <laughs> unfortunately. And they're like, what do you mean nothing works? Well this this has been and you're like, have you actually read that study? You know, it was in rats. Um, you know, the, the significance was pretty low. And as far as I can tell, the translation to human trials yet is, is, is a good while away, you know, and people are just <laughs> so much looking to hang the hat on stuff that, you know, we're, we're nowhere near in terms of what works. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, um, like say from, from the nutrition space, you know, especially in, in combat sports, you know, the creatine with a creatine for like brain health and things like that. Yeah. Um, we're nowhere near that you know a lot of the research that's actually being done is is in like animal models and yes it's promising and yes it's exciting and and yes i hope it works but people coming up with these protocols oh you need to do this now and you need to take that and you need to take the other you're like 
have you even read into this? Are you even informed about what you you know you're trying to um, to tell people about? But I suppose one of the biggest things around all that meat is, is everyone's an expert in coronavirus these days. So no surprise. <laughs> Well, you know, you know that's very interesting that you do say that, Carl, because I have a YouTube video that I'll send you after this. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because um, we can just summarize the whole uh, field of epidemiology, virology, and medicine in a 20-minute YouTube clip, so I'll send that to you and you can look into it. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, yeah. On, the, on that topic as well, I think if we were to do everything that we were supposed to do, yoga, strength and conditioning, run triathlons, take supplements, you know, we'd be training six times a day and I'd be dragging around a shopping trolley full of supplements as well. I, and I wouldn't even go out to work. So, um, yeah. you know, if you were to put all these things down, because I, I remember having this conversation about two years ago on the mats after training one day and somebody was asking me, well, what's the best way to train? And they were kind of, and everybody was chipping in that this kind of circle form. And I went, all right, let's look at all the things you want to do. You want to go to yoga, you want to lift weights, you want to do triathlons, you want to do hit sessions, you want to do kickboxing, you want to do wrestling, you want to do jiu-jitsu, you want to do cryotherapy, you want to go to the sauna, you want to have cold water exposure as well, and you want to do meditation. Like, what? do you have a job? Do you have family? Like, that's only the stuff you're doing. Now let's look at all the other things you want to do. Chiropractor, massage, this vitamin, that vitamin, stem cells, TRT. Yeah. How much, how much does that cost, Right. Now let's look at what time you got left for your job. None. What time you got left for your family? None. And what, how old are you? 36. The chances of you becoming a professional athlete and taking out a UFC middleweight title is probably slim to none. So I suggest you probably focus on your job and maybe go and, you know, maybe get an undergraduate degree in sports science yeah, if you want. Yeah, like you say, what, what, what makes me laugh about all that stuff is, is it's meant to enhance recovery. It, it does make me laugh. It's kind of like got two hours between sessions and then, like I say, they go and do some contrast therapy and then they go and have a massage and then they go and do this and it's like, oh shit, I've got to train again now. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, I bet you wish you'd have just gone home had a good meal, you know, maybe, maybe even have a nap um, exactly, or, you yeah. know, just chilled out, let let the mind recover. It's like, come on, man. It's just, you know, but uh, no, I think it's, um, you know, as, as you know, mate, there's no magic formula. I think everybody's an individual. You, you've just got to try and find a way that, that gets with the individuals. And, and look, I'm, I'm super, super lucky with the guys I work with. Um, you know, they, they just seem to really not submit. Um, you know, because one of the things that, um, you know, I always, always like to say to, to the guys we work with is that we want to try and educate them on how to do this stuff. Um, some of them don't, they just want to be told what to do. And, you know, you, you've got to really think, you know, I think it's becoming really prevalent, you know, behavior change and, and how you work with certain individuals and stuff like that. But yeah, I'm lucky that a lot of them who we work with, are first of all, just kind of submit and go, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. And then after a period of time, um, you know, start to become informed. And like I say, Molly, Molly is a, is a brilliant example. Whenever we decide to do something now, it's a discussion and she'll go, mm. okay, so why are we doing it? Um, what are the benefits? What are the pros? What are the cons? Is it worth it? Uh, and she's just so well informed and great about that. So yeah, I'm 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 the lucky one in terms of looking with a, an athlete like that because you know she doesn't just blindly follow and do what we tell her to do. She asks questions, but if the evidence base is there and and the um you know the the pros outweigh the cons, then then she she goes in for it a hundred percent, which is great. Excellent. Carl, we've been going for nearly an hour and a half now, and I know you're a busy man. And um, yeah, it's getting towards sleep time here in Perth and Western Australia. So 
I want to thank you very much for being on the podcast today. If people want to get in touch with you, if there's uh, any athletes out there or any people that want to, uh, you know, do some research with you or just get in contact with you and pick your brain, what's the best way to uh, get in contact with you? Yeah, no, I've a couple of different ways. So if, if people want to get in touch with me directly, they can just email me. Um, you go straight to my work email at C dot langan evans that's all one word if you can manage to spell that that is um so c dot langan evans at ljmu.ac.uk i am on twitter uh, with the twitter handle and you know it's a disgrace that i have to check this every time um <laughs> at cle sposci s-p-o-s-c-i uh, and i'm also on instagram as uh, again i have to check this coach carl evans so there you go there you go we'll have all those in the show notes there so you can just scroll down there in the show notes on your phone and, and click on those but um, yeah make sure to uh, follow Carl and check him out Carol, thank you very much for being on today I really appreciate it no thanks for having me on mate it's been an absolute pleasure and um, looking forward to more of the work that you guys are putting out in the sleep space as well it's really valuable cheers